This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Wade Fow, author of Safety First Retirement Planning, an Integrated Approach for a Worry-Free Retirement. Wade, thanks for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Well, thank you for having me. So since you've written about uh, worry-free retirement, I wonder if we could we could begin by talking about some of the biggest worries that people have about retirement and what does it mean to address them through an integrated approach? Mm-hmm. Well, so generally speaking, when you're trying to meet a spending goal over your retirement, kind of covering your annual budget, the three main groups of worries are, the, the first is longevity risk. And in some way, that's not a good name for it. It's this idea, I don't know how long I'm going to live. And, and some people will live a very long time. And that makes retirement more expensive. The longer you live, the more your retirement costs. So you have to plan for that. And then the second risk is related to the markets and, and market volatility and how when you're living on distributions from your assets, that market volatility actually gets amplified and has a bigger impact. So market volatility would be the same, like the ups and downs in the stock market, but it has a bigger impact when you're spending from your assets because whenever there's a downturn, you now have to sell more shares to meet your spending goal. And that just leaves less less behind to be able to recover if there is a subsequent market recovery. And then the third source of worry, I, I just call spending shocks or contingencies. And that's the potentially large types of expenses that may or may not happen, but just if they do happen, so things like a big health care bill, long-term care events, helping adult family members and so forth, they require some additional assets as well to just be available to cover that type of uncertainty. Great. Uh, Now, you write in your book that there are two competing schools of thought about how finances should be managed during retirement. The first is what you call the probability-based approach, and the second is what you call the safety-first approach. Could you explain the difference between the two? Mm -hmm. Yes, and it really boils down as well to basic questions about retirement will get completely different answers. And so the way I generally describe them is the probability-based approach is more comfortable with investments and with the idea of stocks for the long run, that if you just are able to hold on to your stocks for a sufficiently long time period, they should outperform bonds and it should be able to support more spending than just a bond portfolio could support in retirement. And so the idea then in the probability-based world is just use an aggressive investment portfolio, kind of the baseline advice is hold 50 to 75% stocks in retirement and just fund your retirement from your portfolio earnings and also from principal in your portfolio. And that contrasts with the safety first approach, which also includes investments like the probability based approach, but leaves an opening as well for risk pooling and insurance and incorporating the idea that when you pool a group of people together, you can better plan around how long the average person in that risk pool is going to live, and so you can support a higher spending level that way. And that can become a more efficient way to cover the the expenses, the baseline retirement expenses, rather than just trying to rely on on the stock market as a way to fund those baseline retirement expenses. Now now to just dive in a little bit deeper, uh, if we consider the probability-based approach, 
what would you say are its uh, pros and cons? Mm -hmm. So it really boils down to the market performance. If, as historically has typically been the case, stocks do well and outperform bonds, and if there are downturns, there's subsequent recoveries that happen pretty quickly, then you can support a pretty good lifestyle in retirement because your, your portfolio may even continue to grow throughout retirement so that you can leave a big legacy as well and you cover all your, your goals because typically stocks do outperform bonds. And so when that happens, you'll, you'll be better off. Uh, the, the risk, though, is just the risk of the market that past performance doesn't guarantee future performance. And if you do get into a position where there's a market downturn that may last more than a couple of years, that can really dig a hole for the portfolio and, and lead to a much lower standard of living or just make it harder to cover the financial goals of retirement. You're really you're dependent on the performance of the markets in your early year of retirement. And so if markets do well, you're, you'll be fine. If there's a bear market in the early retirement years, you might run into a lot of trouble. And, and so that's really the pros and cons of, of probability-based. With safety first, it's, some of the cons aren't really cons. There's this idea that if you use insurance and risk pooling, so something like an annuity, that you're giving up upside of the market, that you've somehow given up and you, you're, you're going to get a guaranteed income for life, but you're no longer going to benefit from stock market returns. Hmm. And the idea, though, is it's an integrated strategy. Part of your assets go into the annuity, and so the risk pooling that you get can actually support a, a higher standard of living or allow you to meet your spending goal with less assets. And so the pros are then your other remaining assets after you've already got contractual protections to cover your baseline retirement expenses. The other assets can now be invested aggressively and, and you can seek more upside growth exposure because your standard of living is not as vulnerable to market downturns. And so that can that integrated strategy can help you meet spending goals and as well um, have legacy or, or maintain assets as well for other purposes. And that would be the pros. The cons of it are just annuities can be complicated and there are many different types of annuities. And, and with the tax code in the U.S., a lot of annuities got focused more on providing tax deferral instead of providing this sort of lifetime income that I'm talking about. And it can be tough to navigate through all the different types of annuities and, and how they can work together or what types to choose and so forth. And they're not all created equal. The, their, their complexity can obscure the uh, like not competitive pricing inside of them and so forth. And so right. consumers do have to be wary and, and make sure that to integrate these strategies. And, and is, it's part of that is to find the right type of annuity to sure. be included in that plan. So, so just to, uh, to, to probe a little deeper into that, is there a cost to safety that has an impact over the long term? So the, the cost to safety, that's, that's kind of a traditional conception that you're somehow, the cost would be that you're giving up upside. And, and the reality is that that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. The way I describe this is there's really three basic ways you could fund a retirement spending goal. And the first, kind of the, the baseline would be you just use bonds. You kind of ladder out bonds, you're spending the interest, you're spending principal, but you're you're spending on a bond portfolio over time. 
And with interest rates as low as they are, that might not support all that much spending. So your two options to try to spend more than that kind of feed into this probability-based or safety-first approach. With, with probability-based, you're going to invest aggressively in the stock market. And then, like, like I was saying, if stocks outperform bonds, you can spend more. <laughs> and then with safety-first, it's the same sort of concept. An annuity is much like a bond, but it adds this additional component of risk pooling where you have this, this risk pool those who don't live as long help to subsidize those who live longer, that can then raise the standard of living of everyone in the risk pool or allow you to meet spending with less assets. And so you don't seek the, the upside. That would be where if it was only an annuity, the cost would be you're giving up upside. Mm. But again, the idea is you, you don't have to use as much assets to meet the spending this way, and then the other assets would go into an investment portfolio. And that's where you can still have that upside. And if you live beyond your life expectancy, the odds could be in your favor of actually leaving behind more assets at the end after meeting the same sort of spending goal with either approach. Is the approach that you're describing, does it require a minimum uh, uh, size of investment portfolio or is it relevant to people at different levels of, uh, you know, assets that they have for their retirement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so from, from each side of that, one does have to be careful not to put all of their assets into an annuity. Mm. So for people with lower amounts of wealth, often Social Security will be enough annuity income for them that they may not have the resources to even consider more than that because they do need some liquid investments. And as a kind of very basic rule, if you don't have more than $100,000 of investment assets, then again, Social Security is probably going to be enough annuity for you, and you better just keep your investments as, investment assets as they are. Then on the other end of the spectrum, often you'll hear this idea that people can become wealthy enough that they don't need the annuity. And it can certainly be the case, and, and that, as well, it's not just about wealth, but it's really more about spending relative to wealth, that if you're able to live on, say, 1% of your assets as an annual spend-down, it's true that you're unlikely to ever run out of money, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't get the same sort of benefits I'm talking about. It's just a smaller portion of the assets could be earmarked to cover spending through the annuity, which again protects the lifestyle and frees up all those other assets to be, you can have more comfort investing them and so forth because your lifestyle is not dependent on them. If there is a stock market downturn, it, it's not going to disrupt your standard of living and so it, it would take a smaller portion in the annuity, but still there's no cap of any sort of wealth levels. You can still benefit from that sort of integrated approach. It's just once your wealth falls below a certain threshold, you, Social Security is going to be enough annuity income for, for that type of household. Sure. Now, since you brought up Social Security, uh, I was wondering uh, you know, what you think of one common debate uh, that uh, one often hears, which is whether retirees should claim Social Security at the earliest opportunity or whether they should wait until they're at full retirement age or even until they are age 70 to maximize their monthly receipts. What is better mm -hmm. for retirees and what does the research show? Mm -hmm. Well, there can be some exceptions, but generally speaking, and especially for the high earner in a couple, Waiting till 70 is worth it 
there's a delay credit. When you wait to claim Social Security at a later age, you get an increase in your subsequent benefits and vice versa. If you claim before your full retirement age, you're going to have a reduction to your benefits. And the original idea was that was supposed to be fair in terms of it wouldn't matter what age you claimed, you'd get higher benefits if you wait, but for a shorter period of time and it wouldn't make a difference. But those rules for that were created in 1983 when interest rates were a lot higher and when people weren't living as long. So today for the average person, interest rates are lower, you're living longer, it's really in your favor to delay Social Security. And for what I said about a couple, the high earner in the couple, their benefit's going to last for even longer because once one of the two spouses passes away, well, if, the, if it's the, um, the earner that passes away first, that benefit gets turned into a survival benefit, mm. and it will be provided for as long as at least one member of the couple's alive, which makes it even more likely that you're going to have at least one member of that couple live long enough that they get these clear benefits from waiting. So, so there can be some exceptions, but for the most part, I think a good starting rule of thumb is the high earner in a couple or a single individual in reasonable health should really look at the idea of, of waiting till closer to age 70 to claim Social Security. Right. You, I mean, one of the things I really liked about your book is that right in the beginning you offer eight guidelines for safe retirement. And I was wondering if you could talk us through the top two or three and why they are the most significant guidelines. Oh, sure. Uh-huh. Well, so the first one is about this idea of plan to live a long time. There's kind of this idea of, well, how, for the first question someone has to consider in building a retirement plan is how long should the money last? Like what age do I plan for? And it's easy there for people to fall into the trap of just thinking, oh, my parents didn't live past 60 or, oh, I'm never gonna live past 65 or whatever the case may be. And if that's true, it's pretty easy to plan for retirement because you're not gonna have to fund a very long retirement. But that's not how retirement planning works. You have to anticipate the possibility of living to an advanced age and therefore have to strategize around being able to fund a more costly retirement because you're living longer. Um, the, The other guidelines there include just try to be efficient in terms of not wasting resources, and, and that can really apply to taxation. So making sure you have assets located in the proper types of accounts between taxable accounts, tax-deferred accounts like 401ks or IRAs, or tax-free accounts like Roth, and figure out the kind of right way to spend from those so that you're not pushing yourself up into higher marginal tax brackets unnecessarily. Also, just be realistic about portfolio returns. A lot of times you see, and especially with probability-based mindsets, that well, assuming the stock market earns 12% a year or even 10% a year, whatever the case may be, it's true that if you get a fixed 10 or 12% return, that makes retirement planning a lot easier. But the, the chances to get that are not as high as people tend to think. That could be an average. Well, the 12% is not even an average for a growth rate. But even if that's the average, most retirees are not going to be 100% stocks. They have to account for bonds. They have to account for inflation, taxes, their asset allocation, and the fact that they want their plan to work more than half the time, which means assuming a lower rate of return than average as well. 
and that that's the I think those are the top few concerns and issues there. Uh, what should bonds play in a safety-first retirement strategy? Uh, do you think retirees should invest in TIPS or Treasury inflation-protected securities, even if the returns are low? And uh, also, you mentioned earlier uh, laddering of individual bonds, and I was wondering if that makes sense for retirees, and if so, how they should go about that. Mm-hmm. So bonds can have a role for other types of goals, like as a source of liquidity. But when it comes to the, the retirement spending goal, like this is the budget I want to fund each year, bonds are the, the least efficient way to fund retirement. So all the research done in this area really points to this idea that in retirement, the idea of asset allocation that we know we think about is like, what should be my stock, my stock and bond allocation? Well, the efficient way to approach retirement is to shift the bonds over into annuities because annuities are like bonds that also offer additional spending power through their risk pooling. Once you spend down a bond portfolio, it's gone. But with an annuity, you have that contractual protection behind it. So it's instead of stocks and bonds, it's stocks and annuities. And so therefore, to the extent that people are comfortable with it, it really suggests not having a whole lot of bonds in the portfolio when it comes to funding a retirement spending goal. But the, behaviorally, the problems with that are you end up having a pretty aggressive stock portfolio alongside an annuity. And those, both of those can be kind of tough for people to swallow. So beyond that, though, if, if you are looking at bonds, the idea of building a bond ladder is you set up that each year you kind of start at the end. So if I'm going to build a 10-year bond ladder to, say, cover the first 10 years of retirement expenses, I'll start with buying a 10-year bond so that when it matures, it's going to give me my the amount of spending I anticipate needing in that 10th year. And then I go back and look at a 9-year bond. And I'll already be getting a coupon from the, tenth, the bond in the 10th year, so I'll buy enough of that 9-year bond to, to fill out how much spending I want in the 9th year. And then you just keep working your way backwards to the current year. This is a lot easier if you're just working with zero coupon bonds, which don't pay coupons. But if you are working with coupon-paying bonds, it's, it can be managed, and, and that would be the way to approach it. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, now, given what you said about the risk of market volatility, uh, what, what sort of uh, role do you think stocks should uh, should play in this safety-first retirement strategy? How much of your uh, portfolio uh, should be in stocks compared to, say, annuities? Mm-hmm. So the way I approach that question, it's really to try to first figure out how much should be in annuities. And then at that point, the rest can be in stocks. And the way you look at that is try to think about, well, what's my budget? How much do I want to spend every year? And how much of that would I like to have from reliable sources that don't rely on the stock market to be able to fund those expenses? So then I, then I look at my assets. So Social Security is part of that. If I still have a traditional company pension, I would, and that's not a 401k, but an actual pension providing a lifetime income. I add up those types of resources I already have, and then if there's a gap, so if, for example, just completely hypothetical, I want to spend $80,000 and I have $60,000 of reliable income sources already, then I'd have a $20,000 gap 
and I would look to see, well, how much of my assets would it take to fund that gap with an annuity? And then that would become, if that's a reasonable portion of the assets, what I would put into the annuity. Mm-hmm. And then with the, the rest of the assets, at that point, now, they don't have to be in all stocks, but at that point, you're, you're getting to the this idea that you now have more risk capacity. Your lifestyle is protected from market volatility now. So you can invest the rest as aggressively as you want. So potentially entirely in stocks, but uh, if you're not comfortable with that, of course, you could just add in a bond exposure as well. Hmm. You you, uh, write quite a bit in the book about annuities. Uh, So just as an... uh, as an introduction, could you help our audience understand the case for and against annuities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a, a lot of the writing in the book is just to explain how different types of annuities work. In, in terms of their advantage or the case for them, it's whether it's the simple income annuity or whether it's one of the more complicated annuities like a variable or in, fixed index annuity, if you add this guaranteed living withdrawal benefit to it to provide the lifetime income component, that with either of those, you're now getting a way to fund lifetime income, that no matter how long you live, you don't have to worry about outliving the ability of that asset to fund your expenses. The the cons just can relate to the complexity of it all. And, And there's not complexity with the simple income annuity. That's the kind where you pay a single premium and you're quoted how much income you'll receive each month for the rest of your life. The uh, complexity would relate more towards these, technically they're deferred variable annuities or deferred fixed index annuities that have, the reason they were created was to try to help people hold on to the assets so they're not annuitizing the contracts. You still have liquidity and you still have the ability to get some upside exposure through them, and you still have the ability to get lifetime income from them. But with all of those features, they can become quite complex. The fees can be high. It can be hard to understand what the fees are. They may be obscured or behind the scenes that, especially indexed annuities, can they work as a spread product like a, a bank account where it's just that the insurance company expects to earn a higher return on the assets than they pay to you. And so it can can be hard to understand what that spread is (laughs) and so forth. So that's just the complexity of it all and to make sure you understand how all the different moving parts work together and how much lifetime income you will receive from the annuity becomes a really important way to, to compare different types of annuities. Right. Now, what is your view of charitable gift annuities? What trade-offs should retirees consider while deciding whether to make them part of their portfolio? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so that's really, that can help people. There's there's this academic concept of the annuity puzzle about academics think annuities are great for funding retirements, but the puzzle is why don't people always want to use them? And one of the explanations is about fairness. And and though it's not true, there's this misconception that if somebody buys an annuity and then dies early, the insurance company wins at their expense. And and that's not really true because it's really more about the risk pool, and it's those in the risk pool who live longer that win. But the charitable gift annuity can help to solve that sort of behavioral issue 
because then you can frame that as, well, if I don't live as long, then it's the charity that will, will win at my expense. Mm. And for it to really be true for the charity to win, the payout from the charitable gift annuity should be lower than from the commercial annuity, because that way they have more chance to actually to win and to receive a charitable contribution. And, and so that becomes the trade-off to the extent that they're offering lower payouts, although that may not always be the case. I've, I've heard about some cases where charitable gift annuities were actually competitive with commercial annuities, and, and so you may not be sacrificing income to do that, but at least you have that psychological feeling that you are potentially helping that charity. And there can also be some tax benefits associated with the portion of that annuity that, that serves as a charitable contribution. And what are those returns? Are they about 4 or 5%, something like that? For the payouts? Yeah. Yeah, or if, it depends on age and, and it depends on if it's a single individual or a couple. If you're talking about 4%, that's definitely going to be, that sounds a little bit low even for the younger the person is the more likely it would get that low, and, and that would be more for couples. But yeah, even 5 or 6% for people in their 60s or 70s, singles versus couples. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, how can retire, re- retirees factor life insurance into their plans to buffer against the volatility of other investments? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, I have a whole chapter about life insurance, which was a really interesting area for me to explore there's this notion out there of buy term and invest a difference where you only need life insurance before you retire. And so therefore, if you use a term policy, the premiums are lower and that allows you to get the most into your investment account. But I, I compared that sort of approach against an approach that carries life insurance into retirement, that you have permanent life insurance, a permanent death benefit. And then I, I compared and contrasted these different ideas looking at life insurance, four ways it might contribute to a retirement income plan. The first is it can be a more efficient way to meet a legacy goal. Like if I just have in mind this is the amount I want to leave to my heirs, it can be cheaper to pay a life insurance premium to fund that. Then the alternative, which is I now have to spend more conservatively from my investments to, to increase the likelihood that I can meet that legacy goal through my investments. Uh, the next approach is the life insurance can make people feel more comfortable using an annuity because of this concern we talked about, this idea that if I die early, I'm somehow losing out on the annuity. But you can frame that as the life insurance would replace that asset for the household. So it's integrating life insurance with an annuity mm-hmm. and with investments. The third approach is, is, like you mentioned, using the cash value of the permanent life insurance as a volatility buffer. So it's a resource with whole life insurance that's contractually protected not to decline in value. And so if there's a market downturn, rather than selling portfolio assets at a loss, you can actually just temporarily cover your spending through the life insurance and give that portfolio more chance to recover. And there can be some tax advantages with doing that as well. And then the fourth approach is simply the idea that when you consider the tax advantages of life insurance and the efficiencies of the insurance company being able to invest in a broader fixed income portfolio with longer maturities, more credit risk, less liquidity, the potentially just net of taxes 
the cash value of life insurance can actually outperform a taxable bond portfolio as a way to just think about where do I want to invest my, my bond assets. This would be more in the pre-retirement years. Should I buy term and then have a taxable bond portfolio, or should I use, for example, whole life insurance and just treat the cash value as my bonds? And I find that, well, that net of taxes, it can be a competitive type of return just from the, the cash value of life insurance. Right. Uh, now, one final thing, in order to step into the golden years with a sense of safety and security, uh, retirees need to manage four L's, as you described them in your book, lifestyle, longe longevity, legacy, and liquidity. What's the most important piece of advice you could give retirees on how they should do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those are the financial goals of retirement. And the lifestyle longevity are your retirement budget, legacy is your legacy goal. And the most important advice there would really be to how to think about liquidity. Liquidity is this idea of you have money that's available to cover unexpected expenses. But in a retirement income plan, to be a liquid asset, it can't be earmarked for something else. You, you can't double count assets. So mm -hmm. there's this idea that just because you have a brokerage account with stocks and bonds in it, that is technically liquid, but it may not be truly liquid because that money has been earmarked for another purpose. Mm. And if you spend it because you have some sort of unexpected spending shock, that would reduce your ability to meet your future baseline retirement budget expenses. So to, to be more holistic when thinking about liquidity, that it's only liquid if it's not been earmarked for something else in the financial plan. I think that brings me to the questions I had. Is there anything else that you think I should have asked, but I haven't? Oh, no, I do think we, we've covered the highlights there. It's integrated strategies. Again, it's not only annuities. It's really about how do you bring in the investments along with the insurance to, to build better retirement plans. So thank you. Great. Uh, Wade, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. In my pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.